This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, September 23, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In a newsroom, what does diversity mean? Does it only refer to varied ethnicities, genders, or places of origin? Does ideological diversity have a place at places like the many affiliates of NPR news stations? John Caldera is president of the Independence Institute in Colorado. We discussed the value of ideological diversity in radio news. You and I both listen to NPR every single day. And uh, I don't do it because it's I'm trying to gather intel. I do it because it is, quite, quite frankly, the best way to get news while I'm getting ready for my day or am in my car. And uh, generally speaking, it's an excellent source of news. They're also spectacular storytellers. They know how to use sound effects. They know uh, when, to, when to amplify something, what music to use, which sets a mood, which is nothing more than editorializing, but it does set a tempo. It sets, a, a, um, sets up a story. My concern, and also this is a great opportunity, I agree with you about the quality of what they do, the sincerity of what they do, as newspapers begin to dwindle, there is very little real news coming out, particularly in local areas. Now, NPR does, you know, puts a lot of effort into national stories. We, we listen to them all the time. But also local affiliates. I live in Colorado. Colorado Public Radio has an incredible staff of highly liberal um, reporters who are great people. They do a good job. They believe in what they do. Uh, but I think there's an opportunity that in the future, these radio stations, along with their web pages, become the newspaper of record in large cities. So the Denver Post, as it turns from a newspaper into a newsletter over the years, I believe Colorado Public Radio and NPR become that, that important media for those of us who care about politics, not just in D.C., but in our states and our hometowns. Yeah, I mean, just look at your local metro section. Uh, and compare it to a metro section from 10 years ago, and it's it's thin. It's it's pretty thin. Well, and also we 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 have more confirmation bias when we go out and find our news. We will go to the Drudge Report. We will go to here. We will go to there. We'll find things that are good for us. What newspapers did back when people would read them is that they forced you to read all sorts of stories, even if you just skim the headlines in the first paragraph or the subhead. And so you flip through it and you're exposed to these stories. NPR, public broadcast, does the same thing. You're hostage in your car. You're listening to this. They tease something you might like, and then they bring you through and you listen to these other stories, all of which are magnificently produced painstakingly produced. I'm having a fight with our local public radio station because they live in a bubble they refuse to admit. Now, I'll talk to the reporters there, all of whom are just great men and women, and they even acknowledge it privately that there's a whole bunch of people who roughly think like themselves. There might be different gradients of progressive reporting, but there's nobody there inside those editorial meetings to go, wait a second, we, we haven't shown the other side of this or given it fair play. A lot of them don't even know what the other side is because there's nobody in that editorial meeting 
who thinks differently than them in a larger sense. They might feel there's a big uh, diversity, but there isn't. And what's funny is if you go to their webpage and you read their guidelines and their uh, policies, they're very proud about the diversity they have. And it's true. They've got a rainbow of people from different races, different genders, different sexual identities, but not of ideology. And if these stations are going to become the media of record in our cities and towns and states and nation, we need ideological diversity. And especially since some percentage of their funding comes from us, I believe they have a responsibility to do that. What's been so frustrating is that as these stations, at least the one in Denver does so well, talks about the community, input from the community, a discussion about this, a discussion about that, what we found is the one thing they do not want to have a discussion about is themselves their news coverage, and how they do it. it isn't that just how, that just seems like par for the course for a media organization, though. I don't think that's the case. For instance, I host a television program on Colorado Public Television, Devil's Advocate, and every week we have on reporters, and they are some of the most funny, insightful people who let their, let their personalities out uh, through. They're part of the conversation. The folks from public radio are not allowed by their employer to come out and talk to us. Uh, I've talked to many of them uh, during the election. Coloradans voted about 45% for Donald Trump. I know this is going to shock you, Caleb, but not one CPR, Colorado Public Radio, reporter voted for Donald Trump. Uh, they made that, made that very, very clear. And it, and it comes out in their broadcasts, partly because you can, you can hear their actual hatred and fear of Donald Trump all the way through the election. First it was ridicule, and then it was fear-mongering, and now it's, it's full-blown. Full I've tried to explain to them, and I don't think they understand, and maybe I'm wrong, that the more they do that, the more they play right into the hands of Donald Trump, because the elitism the sanctimoniousness of public radio is exactly what the Trump phenomenon is a reaction against. Yeah, and it, it seems that uh, for people who have already uh, were suspicious of uh, media outlets for being biased, the, the ramping up rhetoric uh, and uh, maybe being a little alarmist about some aspects of uh, his presidency definitely provides uh, yet more reason to be suspicious or reject mainstream news, which N NPR is, uh, wholesale. Let's be honest. NPR is newsy, but it is an editorial section. You know, the beautiful thing about AM talk radio, and I've done AM talk radio for almost 20 years, is it's obviously opinion. And it has two factors that NPR could never, ever handle. The first factor is that it's overtly opinionated. We don't hide. Here is my opinion. It's coming out of my mouth. And it is immediate. It's unscripted. This is a fear that public broadcasts have. So you, can, you can hear it in how they do it. Uh, many stations, I believe the one in Denver as well, when they do the live news at the top, it's not live. They will do it, record it, cut out anything that they misspoke, uh, and, and do, it, do it right, which is why CPR, NPR nationally is now making the top of the hour live from NPR News to make it sound that way. But what talk radio gives you 
is an instant communication to the news. You say something into the microphone, uh, and one truck driver with a cell phone knows you're wrong and can prove it. They call you up immediately and say, yeah, but you didn't say this. But you don't have that opportunity in public radio to immediately say, I have a different thought, or you didn't cover this. Oh, you can, you can write them an email, and they'll read a couple of those on, online. It very much reminds me of the old Soviet, the Soviet style of broadcast, where um, their phone system was dilapidated, and people couldn't use it, so they couldn't talk to one another, but their broadcast, one-way broadcast system was state-of-the-art so that people could hear it and couldn't challenge it. Well, NPR does that, yet they have this veneer of, of being curious, of wanting a dialogue, of being open, having these standards, which, by the way, they do. All I'm asking for is that they put the same amount of energy into hiring uh, diversity, as they do by skin color, gender, and sexual identity, to do the same thing for ideology. One good libertarian inside those meetings will will say the truth, which is this story is an opinion piece by its subject matter. That's how the bias in, at NPR is by subject matter, not by quality of reporting. Well, and that's I think that's been true for newspapers for a really long time, which was the, the whatever bias might exist within the uh, the. Uh, editorial structure of the organization was revealed by what stories they choose to put above the fold, below the fold, A2, A3, A4, a different section uh, in the Washington Post, libertarians, stories about libertarians kind of end up in the style section. Exactly. <laughs> well, libertarians are very stylish, don't you know? Fair. The, the lost opportunity here is to have a real media service while others are shrinking. So while AM talk radio is, is shrinking, uh, where we can't put up with 20, hour, 20 minutes of commercials every hour, NPR shows a different way and can actually compete with things like podcasts. Not this podcast, of course, but other podcasts. And so I think it's worth having this discussion. It's worth putting on the pressure to, to the good people in public broadcast to challenge them to have people of different ideologies there when the meetings are happening. So when they put music towards an editorial piece and go, wait a second, that, that's not there, or you didn't get the other side, or this person you gave and recorded him in the first person, the other side you just approximated what the spokesman said. Uh, the stories, uh, the, the climate change fanaticism that happens at NPR and the local station, they they did an arts piece. Now, this is an arts piece from their arts reporter going into a three-dimensional performance arts piece of what the post-apocalypse is going to be like after climate change and the chilling effect it had on him and the emotional impact it had. Now, was that an arts piece or was that an editorial piece? It's those types of subtlety that come through because these are people that have opinions. And the silliness to think that somehow their professionalism will override their bias is something I think they even know. I just want to have them have a conversation with us. They won't come on my television program. Uh, Westward, the alternative newspaper in Denver, uh, tried to contact them. They refused to, to talk to them. So this organization that talks so much about community discussions 
will not have a discussion about itself. Do you send them uh, recorded editorials that you yourself have done? We have pitched at the Independence Institute many stories over the years, and I have, uh, we have put together emails saying, here's what you did wrong, here's what you did right. You know, they have little tricks that they don't even see. For instance, when they talk to an expert on the left, it is from a non-partisan, non-profit research organization, and then they do it, which says, believe these guys, we're giving them the seal of approval. When talking to evil organizations, be it Cato or the Independence Institute, they will say, the libertarian um, uh, anti-big uh, government growth, I mean, they give a, mod- they give a um, modifier to it, which is accurate and should be used, but they don't do it to our ideological opponents. Even that little tiny thing is how the editorializing happens, and there's nobody there to catch it. And sadly, so many of us who think differently don't take the time to write in and engage them because we don't think it's worthwhile. I've got to tell you, they might be right. It might not be worthwhile. John Caldera is president of the Independence Institute in Colorado. We spoke at the State Policy Network annual meeting in San Antonio. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 